0: Hello, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a quick announcement. This is episode 40 of the 40 Drinks Podcast, which is a cool milestone to hit, but also means it's the last episode of season two. I'm taking a short break to work on some behind the scenes things that will help me make the 40 Drinks Podcast even better. I'll be back with new episodes on Tuesday, April 18. Today's conversation started out with my guest wondering if, because of the name of my podcast, I was going to ask him about his favorite drink. And to be honest, I've been pulling my punches on the whole drinks concept and instead leaning into my conversations with people who have gone through some sort of transformation around age 40. Early on, I had one or two people decline to come on the podcast because they didn't drink or they didn't want to be associated with drinking, which I understand and respect. So. Since then, I've been hesitant to really lean into the drinks aspect. And while this isn't a podcast about drinking, the fact of the matter is that it started with my 40 drinks project, where I had 40 drinks with 40 people at 40 different places over the course of my 40th year. So I think it's time I stopped hedging about the drinks aspect of the podcast, just in case someone somewhere doesn't partake and turns me off because I'm talking about it. See, in my 20s and 30s, I was a big social drinker. I drank a lot. I can clearly recall a night out with my best friend where I had 11 martinis. Yes, 11. And they weren't the polite little triangle glasses either. And we knew the bartender, so they weren't standard pour either. And yes, now that we've finally grown up a little, my best friend and I both know that that was probably not healthy, but it sure was fun at the time. Today, I drink alcohol almost hardly at all. And that's mostly because of the diet I'm on for my chronic illness. But I miss having a great glass of wine or a really cool cocktail occasionally. And on vacation recently, I did have a couple drinks and enjoyed every drop. So, moving forward on the podcast, I'm going to embrace my drinkishness. Not necessarily so much with my guests, but with you, my listeners. We'll grab a drink together and I'll share the story of the day, my conversation with my guest. And I don't care what you're drinking when you listen. The point of the drink is to be social. It's to take time. It's to be with one another. My drinks will often be teas, either hot or cold, but maybe it'll be water with electrolytes in it or maybe it'll be a seltzer. That's my version of a soda pop. Occasionally, maybe I'll swap in a glass of wine or something else. And you can drink whatever makes sense for where and when you're listening. If you're out running errands or commuting, maybe it'll be an iced coffee. If you're home doing chores, maybe it'll be an energy drink. And if you're able to relax while you listen, maybe you will have a glass of wine or a cocktail with me. Let's make that happen for season three, all right? Coming back around to today's guest, it turns out that he had the same disgusting favorite drink that I did back in the day. And if you stick around to the very end of the episode today, you can hear us discussing our shared enthusiasm for one of the more ridiculous drinks ever concocted. Today's 40 story comes from Martin Salama, a native Brooklynite who experienced a childhood trauma that put him on a path to being a people pleaser for most of his life. And the funny thing about being a people pleaser is that while you're trying to make everyone around you happy, usually you're not making anyone happy least of all yourself. And it took losing everything in his late 40s to knock him from that path and set him in search of another, better path, which, spoiler alert, he did find.
1: All right, let's meet Martin.
0: Hi, Martin. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm excited to be here with you.
0: You have an interesting story, one with a few aspects that I haven't run across yet. So I'm very excited to jump into them. In our previous discussion, we just found out that we have both loved the same disgusting and awful drink when we were in our younger years. And I may clip that out and throw it in at the end of the episode because it was so much fun. All right. (laughs) But let's start by with you. I think we have to go all the way back to childhood to get the setting for the story. So why don't you start when you're just a little guy?
1: All right. So, you know, there are things in your life that are like a defining moment, Mm -hmm. but in the moment, you don't recognize them most of the time. You don't recognize, you look back, you go, oh my God, that was the moment. Mm -hmm. And it took me about 40 years to figure that one out. Okay. But when I was 10 years old, I had a tragedy in my life. And it happens to be, it was just 50 years tomorrow that, that it happened. I was walking home from school with one of my four older sisters. And as we were walking on the block, we noticed there was a school bus stopped in front of our house. And as we got closer, we saw that the bus driver was standing on the sidewalk. This was a little weird. And as we got closer, we see him like in shock. The next thing we realize is my mother's running out of the house, carrying my five-year-old brother, Michael, in her arms. She jumps in the car and drives away. We don't know what's going on. We have no idea. Don't forget, this is 1973. It's not like you have any technology. And we come to find out that when my brother Michael got off the bus, he dropped something in front of the bus. And as a five-year-old would do, he went to pick it up. The bus driver looked. This is the days before the arm comes out. Didn't see anything and drove. And he hit him. And four days later... Michael passed away from his injuries.
0: Oh, oh my God. That's so heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. And it was a moment that's seared into my mind until today. I remember that day walking down the street. I remember my parents taking me the night before to the hospital, not knowing I was saying goodbye to him. I thought I was just coming to see him and he was just laying there sleeping on the next day. he, He passed away and you could imagine the effect that it had on my entire family, actually my whole community but on my family specifically, my mother and father were distraught. And in the Jewish community, you have a week of condolence calls. You bury right away and you have a week of condolence calls. And I remember the school bus even coming to school, my class and my sister's class coming to visit us in the middle of the school day to come and see us and and pay their respects. So I told myself a story soon after that I'm the only brother left. I'm the guy. I had seen my brother. I couldn't wait for him to come. When my mother was pregnant, I was like, please don't be another girl. I have enough sisters in my life. When he came out, I was like, okay, this is the guy. He and I are going to be setting off the world on fire. And that all went away. So I'm thinking to myself as a 10-year-old, I'm the guy now. I've got to carry on the legacy. I'm the only one that can carry on the Salama name in my family. And I tell myself, that I never want to see my parents like that again. So it was my job to make sure that they're always happy. And I can look back at that moment and recognize that's when I became a people pleaser. Oh, it's just
0: heartbreaking. And in the early seventies, like you say, there's no technology, but there's also not a lot of forward thinking around mental health and that this was anything other than a tragedy that right. the family experienced there, there wasn't really that thought of let's get the kids into therapy to make sure this doesn't haunt them for their whole lives.
1: No, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, my sisters and I didn't talk about it until 20 years later. Oh. And each one filled in a little more details. But I have to take a moment and recognize my parents at this moment. Because my mother, you know, it was a while before she could come to the Friday night Shabbat dinner table and not break down. Mm-hmm. And somebody reached out to her and said, there's another woman who's lost a child. The two of you should come together and meet with a counselor. And they started a bereavement group for women in our community who lose children. Because no one can walk up to a woman and say, I know how you feel. Unless they know how they feel. Right. And many times over the years, women have come up to me and said, your mother saved my life. She became the leader in that group. That's a wonderful thing to come out of that. And my father too. My father has done many wonderful things. He passed away 20 years ago, but he had done many wonderful things in the community and with me specifically. When I was, it was about 30 years ago, so I was almost 30 years old. I had moved to New Jersey. I founded a synagogue. I was the founder of a synagogue. That at the time, on Saturdays, running around trying to get 10 guys to come so we have what's called a mignon was difficult. But we would do it. <laughs> we'd run around. We'd go house to house. And about a year later, we decided, okay, we've got the foundation, let's buy a house. And I go to my dad, I said, dad, this is what's going on. And my father's the old school. He never says I'm proud of you. You never right. heard those words out of him. I so said, we're ready to go forward. I remember it was right around the holiday of Purim, which is coming up now in the Jewish thing. It was also around the same time as my brother's passing. And I said, we're building, we're going to start, we're going to buy a building. He said, okay, I'll give you $50,000. If you name the building after your brother. Oh, it's an easy decision. Oh, so it's. Yeah. So it's called Share Tefillah B'nai Moshe, which translates to the gates of prayer with the children of Moses. But his Hebrew name is Moshe. His English name is Michael. But you get the gist.
0: How wonderful. What so, a wonderful tribute.
1: Thank you. And today I'm not there anymore. I was the president and the founder for 15 years. There's over 400 families there. Wow. And this summer, the son insisted I come with him because I go down to the shore in the summertime. This is where I was living at the time. For 20 years, we lived by the shore. When I got divorced, I came back to Brooklyn. And he said, Dad, come with me this Saturday to the synagogue. I know it's a bike ride away. Come. I came. And he made a donation with my son-in-law in my name to put something with my name on it in the synagogue. My name is nowhere else in the synagogue. I didn't care, but it was very nice. And the rabbi gets up and he says, everybody look around. You like what you see here? He said, now go back 30 years. There was only one man who had that vision. Nobody saw what he sees today he saw 30 years ago. And he was very, very kind to point me out and talk about that. So it was a very nice thing. That is such a lovely honor. So just on the side, I have to mention my parents and and the effects that they had for me on my life in a positive way, for sure. Of course. Everything we do, every action that happens
0: to us is a stone thrown into a pond that has ripples. And these are some wonderful ripples that have come out of a terrible, terrible tragedy. Yeah. But let's circle back. So you... You became a people pleaser and grew up high
1: school, college, meet a girl. Let's flash forward to there. So yeah, I'll go through high school, go through college. Now during college and high school, there've been times at high school and college where I was like, you know, I might want to become a photographer or I might want to do acting. When I was going into high school, my friend was a year older than me, he'd gotten accepted into the School of Performing Arts mm-hmm. in New York City. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Martin, you should come here. And I don't mean anything negative here, okay? But it's going to come out the way it did in the 70s. And I went to my parents. I said, oh, I think I want to go to this school. I'm not going to get into the major yeshiva that everybody gets to. Let me do this. And they're like, oh, no, right. you can't go there. Yeah. He's gay. You'll become gay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was the old thinking. Yeah. That guy, by the way, I don't know if you ever heard the name Isaac Mizrahi. <gasps> I love Isaac. That was my friend.
0: Oh, my goodness. That's your childhood friend?
1: Yeah. We're not friends anymore, but, you know, we were back. And he actually was in the movie Fame because they filmed it in that school, and he was one of the extras in the movie. Well, as soon as you said the performing
0: arts school, I am of an age that I watched the TV show. So, you know, right. Fame.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not that I would have been turned into another Isaac. But of course. Anyway, but I didn't do it because my parents thought it wasn't good. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. I'll do what you tell me to do, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And that was me. And through college, the same thing. And my father had a business, closed it. And then a couple of years later, put me into business with a man 15 years older than me to do the same thing my father was doing, which was manufacture tablecloths, which is what I did in the beginning. I went into this company and I did what my father told me to do because I wanted to make him happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was the underlying thing, looking for the press. So now what I learned now, looking back, when I became a people pleaser, it also included a few other things. I was taking everything personally. I'm a control freak. I need the recognition for the work that I'm doing that I'm people-pleasing. And I have a very short temper. Does all make
0: sense? Well, not only does it all make sense, it's actually starting to hit a little close to home when you put them all together
1: like that. (laughs) Whoops. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of introspection in the later years of my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So now I get married.
1: Yeah. Okay. I find a beautiful girl from my community. We get married. And now... About a year into it, I opened a business and it's in down by the shore and we live in Brooklyn. We go to the shore in the summertime and she was a Jersey girl. So I'm like, okay, I'm going backwards. I'm going from Brooklyn to New Jersey every day. Right. Would you move to Jersey? My parents weren't too happy about it, but here I am, I'm trying to please everybody. Right. And what I learned is, as a people pleaser, I was pleasing nobody. Mm. But that took me years to understand because I would rationalize that what I was doing was okay because it was for the greater good. Yeah. And I learned later, and we can go into this a little deeper later. That rationalizes really two words rational lies. <laughs> you lie to yourself that it's rational to do things that you know goes against your core belief. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'll go deeper into it, but that's what it is. So yeah. now that's what's happening. I get married and now I'm trying to make everybody happy. I'm running the right. synagogue, I'm doing my business, I'm failing, succeeding, all these things. And then in 2002, 2003, I was closing a business and my wife said, you know what? I just started taking tennis lessons and there's no place to get courts. Cause you're looking for something to do. Let's open up some tennis courts. First thing is the irony of it is, is I'm not an athlete. <laughs> I don't play any sports, <laughs> but I'm like, okay, deep down inside, it's me saying I want to take care of, you know, be the, the breadwinner, take care of my wife, make my wife happy. Right. And I'm not blaming her. I'm saying this is all on me. Yeah. Right? So we start down this road the first thing we got to do is I said, okay, let's do a feasibility study and see if it's worth it to do this. Yeah, it's worth doing. You could get seven, eight courts in a very affluent area in New Jersey. There's Rumson, there's Deal, there's Colts Neck. These all very high income areas. Mm -hmm. Like, great, fantastic. You got there, I think. But he tells me, the feasibility guy, you're not going to make enough money to be worth putting these courts up. You got to put a health club and a spa and make it a whole big thing. We're like, Okay. So we go out and we find the best architect and we start drawing up the plans and then we start looking for the land. Well, first the land came. We got the land. That took a while. Then the architect and the engineers. And we go to the city and they're like, oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to figure this out. You got to go get a a, a civil engineer to figure out the parking. This takes us five years. Wow. And over $3 million invested into it. Oh. Right. And you're still not open for business. We actually opened up a satellite little personal training thing as a way of signing up members yep. like founding members before we are. it's a thing that they do in the industry there. Now, if this was in 2006 or 2007 that we got approved yep. and we went to the bank, they would have thrown the money at us. If you remember what it was like back then, they didn't care. They didn't care what you were doing. They just wanted to lend, lend, lend. right? But They would have it. It would be the summer of two thousand and eight. We go to the bank. We're like, okay, we did it. We got everything, all the approvals, everything. We're ready to go. And the bank goes, yeah, we're not lending right now. (laughs) What? Oh God, what are you talking about? You said when I was ready, you you loved the plans. Yeah, but we're not lending. The market's slowing down now. I didn't realize things were starting to percolate, right? And nothing was really getting there yet. But then. A month later, it's September 2008, and this little guy comes out and says, I screwed up, Mr. Bernie Madoff. He sets off a domino effect that affects the entire world. Because when that happened, the subprime loans also failed. And it was just like a house of cards, basically. And I was one of the victims. So I woke up, and I stopped paying my mortgage, and I stopped paying my car payments and everything. Now, I happen to be lucky because I lived in New Jersey where there were tons of foreclosures so it took a few years before we actually lost our house okay but about two months later my son wakes up and he says dad dad look outside your car is being towed my car was being repossessed yep. i never had something like that happen to me in my life yeah ever yeah It's not a fun sight. And I can imagine it it probably scarred my son.
0: And certainly for an achiever as well, like that's a failure with a capital F. And for someone like you, who's achieving and pleasing and just yearning to make everybody happy, that's got to be a hard hit.
1: Right. And my wife's looking at me and saying, how did you let this happen? Right. Like, how did I let this happen? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know what we were doing. You were there. You were my partner in this. She was my business partner, but she didn't know the financial end. I would just say yes to everything she wanted. I'm not saying she, I'm not being, a of course, it's not on her, no. but it's coming out that way. So I want to clap. Thank you. So now I went into a depression for about a year. Can you understand why I might? Have- I sure can. Yeah. yeah. This
0: is not a surprise to and me. I went
1: through some therapy and I went through some coaching. And when I came out the other side, I said, I'm sorry. I'm tired of all this roller coasters of businesses I've been in my entire life. And now it's time for me to figure out what I want to do for me. So I told you I was the leader of a synagogue, right? I founded it. One of the things I was always great at, and I learned this from my parents because they were community minded people, be the leader of the organization. And when people come in and say, well, I don't know how much time I can give, I'll give you a couple of hours. You show them their potential in that little bit of time and you give them the confidence to do more and more. I was a life coach. By accident, even before you even knew yes, it. Exactly. So I thought about it, I decided, okay, I'm gonna to go to life coaching school. But about two months before life coaching started, it was my 24th wedding anniversary, which happens to fall out the day after Valentine's Day. Okay. So very lovely
0: romantic time, 24 years. You guys have been through it. You've been through thick and thin, good and
1: bad, better and worse. Exactly. And, and she looks at me, she says, I'm done. I want a divorce. Oh. I mean, there's 364 other days of the year. Yeah, there really are. I have a little bit of romance in you. <laughs> Maybe I should have said to her, but I didn't get you anything like that for our anniversary. (laughs) I didn't. Okay, to be honest. Oh, no. Oh. So, yeah, that's what happened to me. And, you know, looking back now, other than our four children, it was the best gift she ever gave me.
0: Isn't that so interesting? The things that take us to our knees just do turn out to be gifts. I have a relevant story. My last full-time job that I worked at, it was a bad situation. It was a bad fit. And it got to the point where I was in this cycle of I made mistakes and then I got in trouble and I lost confidence and I made mistakes and then I'd get in trouble and I lost confidence. Right. And you're just circling the drain and I didn't have the guts to leave. I kept thinking in my head, oh, I should probably start looking for another job. I had gone into this job thinking, that the job description was so perfect for me that I was going to be in this place for like 15 years. And I just kept Mm -hmm. either ignoring it or convincing myself it would pass or just totally ostrich head in the sand until the day that the managing partner and the head of HR came in and shut the door behind them. And I literally looked at them Mm -hmm. like, hi, what's going on guys? What are we talking about today? I had no clue to the point where When the managing director said, we're going to terminate you, literally, my response to him was, (laughs) are you kidding? Literally. I had no idea. So I was very angry. There was a person in the office that had done enough things that put me in the crosshairs that, you know... Anyway, I was very angry for a long time at that person, but truly it got me out of a situation that I wouldn't have gotten out of myself. And it set me adrift where I started working with a career coach. And six months later, I opened my marketing agency that actually three or four days ago turned 16. So, right. It's interesting. The things that are so awful in our lives and hurt so
1: much that are gifts, Yes. in the rear view absolutely in reverse yeah, yeah. And at the time i knew right? you know deep down inside i knew it was coming yeah. for years i would tell myself i don't want to get divorced i don't want to get divorced and but the, you know what the, the law of law of attraction hurt right divorce right yeah you know what at the end of the day god had a plan for me because we would just never right together anyway we had many good years but our values i learned going through coaching were completely different and we were codependent interesting
0: Hi, this is where I usually interrupt to ask you to look down at your phone and either rate or share the podcast. And I'd still love for you to do that. But I had a crazy idea recently. If you're in your late 30s or early 40s and you're starting to feel some sort of ick in your life, like one or more aspects of your life doesn't quite feel like it fits anymore and you don't know what to do about it, what would you think about having 40 drinks with me? Let's work through the ick together over drinks. Maybe you'll even avoid some of the mistakes I made along the way. If you're game, drop me a line, Stephanie at 40drinks.com, and let's chat about the possibilities. All right, back to Martin, who's going to describe what a codependent relationship looks like. Tell me a little bit about what codependent
1: looks like. Give me some examples. Okay, so I'll give you my example of what works. So one of the books I read as I was becoming a life coach was the book called The Mastery of Love. Okay. And in the book, this gentleman, his name is Don Miguel Ruiz, who also wrote another unbelievable book called The Four Agreements, I love that book. Which is one of the books that had turned my life around. Yep. But in The Mastery of Love, he talks about every relationship you have should be 50-50. That doesn't mean give 50% of yourself. You give 100% to yourself and you want the other one. But when you add it up, it's 50-50 to each other. In retrospect, I can look back in my marriage and say, it was not 50-50. I loved her 70%. She loved me 30%. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who loves more, you're always trying to get the one that loves less to love you more. To the point where she would say, I love you. And I would say, I love you more. Right. And unfortunately, you know, lots of times there's truth in humor. Right. So as a result, the one that loves less has the power in the relationship. Yes. Go do this. Yes. You got it. Right. Because you're in a place of fear. Because if you don't do that, it will erode the love that that person does have. through this- That's the mindset. Yeah. And that's the, the lack of self-confidence, this lack of self-worth. That's what you're telling yourself. Yep.
0: Yep. I can see that in a lot of my relationships. I had 20 years worth of not great romantic relationships with men. And in several examples, knew that I was the one who was more into it. And there is a fear of, oh, I got to be perfect or else they'll see and they'll love
1: me less. To the point where in a relationship, you want to make the other one happy. Right. To me, it was a whole nother level. Yes. I wanted to make sure she was never unhappy. Yes. I was her safety net. I was the one that was going to make sure if she was upset that whoever was making her upset was going to pay for it. Yep. Well, she would not have bad night's sleep every night, and I would be the one that puts the kids on the bus. And when she was sleeping, mommy's sleeping, mommy's not quiet, 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 quiet. Well, mommy's not feeling well. It was me trying to control the situation to protect her. Yeah. Again, this is me. It's all on me. Of course. It's me deciding that I have to take it. So that to me, what I look like is a codependent relationship. It's interesting. I totally hear everything you're saying when
0: you're talking about this situation, you were in with somebody else, but you're like, it's me, it's me. It's interesting because you're doing things almost mindlessly, but you're being driven by what's inside of you. You're not choosing, you're not thoughtful, you're not understanding. All. It's all reactive. Yeah. It's all reactive. It's all fear and it's deep. Yeah. It's deep. I did a lot of this as well, Martin, in my romantic mm-hmm. relationships. So I'm, I'm yeah. just, uh, okay. I'm,
1: f- I'm sorry if I'm making you relive it. No, no, yeah. no,
0: no. Well, it's interesting, right? Cause much like you, the way you're talking about it, y- you can relive it when you've come yeah. to a place of stability and feeling solid in yourself and feeling- right. It's reflecting on Yeah, it. It's not reliving Correct. it, it's reflecting. Correct. And when you reflect on it, you can learn new things from it or you can see different things you didn't right. see before. Exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. I call myself a recovering people pleaser now. I love it. Because you know what? There will be times that I'll fall down that rabbit mm-hmm. hole again, whether consciously or subconsciously, just like addicts. Yep. It's a disease, I get it. Okay? Alcoholism, gambling, substance abuse, I get it. But that's why they call them recovering alcoholics. And the same thing here. It's not a disease, but it's a mindset that you could easily fall right back into. Yes. Just last night, my husband
0: came to pick me up at work and he's got something going on at work, a situation that's a little sort of out of the ordinary that's got him wound. It's got him absolutely wound. And he came and he sat down and something had happened yesterday and he was going through it and he was all pissed off. he's like, I don't know why this affects me so much. And this has happened every couple of years. Anyway, I said, this always does. It gets under your skin and he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder in some Mm. respects. And I said, this particular thing gets stuck under your chip. And he said, oh God, yeah, it does. It does. And so we were talking about it and he was being very open with me. It's a hot button. It's a hot button. button. He was being open and he was allowing me to sort of ask questions. And he said, I just don't want this to happen anymore. And I said, well, you don't have to let it. You're the one in control, but I don't know how, Mm -hmm. I don't know how. And I told him these things, these instances, when they pop up, If we're conscious of them, they can be practice opportunities for doing things differently.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And I reminded him that, it's funny that the story should come around this way. When I first met him and started dating him, I knew he was special. He was different. And I also could see my past littered with those carcasses of awful relationships. And so I said to myself... I'm going to do things differently this time. If I want to call him, I'm not going to call him. If I want to text him, I'm not going to text him. There were other rules I made for myself. And every time I picked up the phone, I put it back down. Well, wouldn't you know it? I gave space for him to come in and co-create this relationship rather than me just steamrolling it into existence. So Mm -hmm. I actually told him that example last night. I said, I was conscious that this was a situation that had screwed me up before. So I was consciously using it as an example, as a practice to do things better. And so I was trying to explain to him for him in this situation. he was in
1: the moment, it was hard for him to hear it, I bet.
0: Actually, he was much more open to it than he's ever been before, which as you and I both know, means that some of these things might be loosening. You might be coming to a place of deciding you want something different.
1: So I get that. I totally get that whole scenario because it's actually part of what I coach my clients around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Back up two steps. How did you go from a guy who was a Business guy who owned multiple businesses over time, some were in manufacturing, some were in importing, uh,
1: real estate. Right?
0: Like you didn't wake up one day and say,
1: Oh, I guess I want to coach people. So, in that year of depression and retrospection, I realized I was never happy as a businessman. I never liked being a salesman, I never liked owning the business and watching the roller coaster of it. A few years ago, I even recognized part of that was because of my fear of failure slash fear of success, which would get in the way. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was involved in community events, like building the synagogue, I never had fear of asking anybody for money. I never had fear of what could happen. What's the worst that could happen? Never. I didn't care. Well, why so would result- you? Because you had
0: passion. You had vision. You were being driven in a very positive right. way. All of a sudden, those asks, those horrible asks for money,
1: were easy. Yeah, and I, I look back and I realized that's what I loved doing. I loved being involved in those things. And looking back now, I'm still struggling, working on getting there. And I don't want to say struggling, but building myself up to getting to the point where I don't have as much emotion attached to things the way I don't have emotion attached to what I did with the synagogues. Because at the end of the day, as a God will take care of it, mm-hmm. you know, I surrender to God, you know. Yeah. In a good way. Yes, of course. So yeah, so uh, that was there. So I was like, well, I wanted to be an actor at one point. I wanted to be a photographer at one point. They told me not to. I'm 45 years old, 47 years old, 48 at this point. I'm saying, I have nothing. Nobody's bailing me out anymore to start a new business because I lost it all. I lost investors' money, and I got to start from scratch, and I got to get a job. And nobody wanted to even hire me because they thought, oh, it's Martin Salama. He's got a lot of money. He's affluent in our community, which is an affluent community. And he'll learn the stuff and then turn around and become our competitor, which was never part of the thing. So I was like, okay, well, I still need to get a job. That happened eventually. But I said, what do I want to do for me? And that started my thing saying, okay, what do I like to do? And I realized I liked helping people. And the idea of becoming a social worker just did not appeal to me. The school that was involved and the scientific side of it, it just didn't. I was never a great student in school. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, what else could I do? Well, I've been coached. I like coaching. So let me do that. So I made that drastic decision. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you went out on a limb and trusted
1: yourself. Yeah. Finally. I'll never forget. I turned to one of my sisters and she said, you're going to be a life coach. Well, yeah, no. And I'm like, you don't have any of your life. to Oh, I again. get her
0: mind completely. <laughs> but what my big, yeah, was you're the guy much like me and what I'm doing here with the experience who's been through the stuff who can actually relate to people who are trying to get their life on track. Like exactly right. you're the guy with stories and examples you know,
1: yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And so I started the the road down to life coach training and they gave us a list of books to read. And one of them was the four agreements. Yeah. That's an amazing book. And when I read, don't take anything personally, I felt like Don Miguel Ruiz was talking directly to me, telling me a secret that the world had been telling me, like my father and other people my whole life, but until that moment, I wasn't ready to hear it. You know the saying, the master will appear when the student is ready. Yes. and it's interesting, Martin.
0: Again, some very kismet stuff here. I think my husband needs to read at least that section of the book for what's going on in his world right now because he's taking some stuff really personally that he shouldn't yeah. be. It has nothing to do with well, him. I,
1: I have somebody in my life now who when we were early in our relationship, I said to her, read the four agreements. She texted me one day. She said, the second agreement is impossible. I said, it is as long as you say it is. Right, right. It's like I can or I can't. It's both true. Correct. Correct. You decide. Yes. Uh, How long have you been coaching now? So I've been coaching for about 10, 11 years. Okay.
0: Yeah. And
1: in the beginning, I was a divorce recovery coach.
0: Okay. Yep. Makes sense. (laughs) Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Again, been there, done that. And then it's transitioned
1: over time. It has. A few years into it, I was coaching and I'd finally gotten a job that was a dead end job. And I was leaving the house at seven, getting home at seven Mm -hmm. and having no life and not being coached and not taking in the information I should have been taking along the way. I looked in the mirror one day. It was the heaviest i had ever been in my life. And I was like, all right, how'd I get here? Right. And I did another introspection. I said, well, I'm not being coached. I can't afford to be coached. Really, I couldn't afford not to be coached because the coaching is really an investment in yourself. And I started, and a friend of mine was on Facebook who actually went to coaching training with me. And he said, I just lost a ton of weight by doing a 30 minute video at home. I said, I could do that. I don't have to go buy a gym membership. I don't have to do any of these crazy things and go out and waste time. I can find a half hour and then take a shower and still be ready for work. Mm -hmm. And in nine months, I lost 65 pounds. Wow! But along with that also came, all the other things. I was eating better. I was reading better. I was allowing myself to be coached. I went out and found a coach because I realized I needed to invest in myself. And I did all these things and I went from self-conscious to self-aware. Yeah. And that's part of what I coach now. And one day I was doing something that I'm ADHD. So could you imagine me meditating for 10 minutes, guided meditation? When is this going to be over? How do people do this? I was
0: going to say, how'd you get the monkeys
1: to quiet down? They didn't. (laughs) But one day I had this download of information. And afterwards I wrote for two hours. Wow. What I loved about my life. And I want to show other people how to love their life too. So they can have their best life. And out of it came the acronym life. Okay. Live incredibly full every day. Love it. Thank you. So now I've started dating some more and I had more self-confidence. And I was set up with a woman and we start dating and I'm going out on dates all the time. And what I'm doing on these other dates at first is I'm taking my coaching training and I'm learning what their values are. To see if we align. Mm-hmm. And okay, this one. Yes. No. Okay. No, 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 no. And I'm start dating this woman and she's checking every box. I go out again, checking every box. This goes on for like a month or so. And I go, wait a minute, I got to tell you something. I don't need to hear it from you, but I need to tell it to you. I'm falling in love with you. You know, when you're 50-something years old, you don't say that so simply. You don't just throw it around. I said, I'm falling in love with you because I love who I see. And I love you see me as I am and you're not trying to change me. And two weeks later, she told me she loved me. And three years later, we got married. We've been married almost five years.
0: That's wonderful. What a great story. Thank thank you. So I'm going to set you up here. You went from A to B. What was it? You went from being a...
1: Warrior to A. A warrior. <laughs>
0: and you have a okay. Brooklyn accent.
1: So <laughs> for anybody that doesn't understand, I went from being a warrior with an O to a warrior with an A. <laughs> and that thought came to me during COVID. Okay. Okay. COVID shuts everybody down. Oh, we're gonna be shut down for three weeks and then everything will be fine. That was March. Right. Now it's May and we're still shut down. Every day I'm going out, I'm wearing the gloves, I'm putting the mask on, I'm going for shopping because I'm not letting this break me down. And I tell my wife one day, let's take her kids and let's drive to the city, New York City. We drive to New York City. And if you've ever been to New York City, could you imagine what it's like driving a few blocks in New York City on a typical day? Yes. Not fun. Yeah. We were able to drive straight up 6th Avenue and then straight down 5th Avenue without missing a traffic light. Oh my God. It was, it
0: was post-apocalyptic, right? It was There was nobody exactly. there.
1: I've seen pictures. Where is everybody? Yeah. You could still go outside. And I realized everybody was worried. And I got onto Facebook and I said, guys, I get it. I know why you're worried. I was there for the last 10, 12 years. I went through 2008. I went through my divorce. I went through the, the weight, blah, blah, blah. Let me show you how you could go from being worried to being a warrior. Yeah. And that's where the warrior's life code came from. Okay. And to me, a warrior is somebody who's gone through the adversities of life and come out stronger and learned from it and built on it.
0: Well, I guess that means I get to be a warrior. You do. (laughs) And you know, a lot of us do. A A lot of us do. We've made it through so much and that the life bumps and bruises and scars. And as long as we're open to learning from those things and evolving
1: and becoming better versions of ourselves... And looking back, I could look at how easily I did the same mistakes over and over and over again in my first life. Yep. I tell my wife all the time, she's lucky. She gets Martin 2.0. Yep. And my kids tell her about Martin 1.0 and she's like, I never want to meet that guy. Yep. So don't worry, he's gone. He's dead. Yep. Yeah. But it didn't happen overnight. That's the thing everybody's got to understand. To be sustainable, it's got to take time and it's got to take effort and it's got to take desire to change and have a big enough why. Because to me, why is another acronym. What's hurting you? Oh, geez. That's amazing.
0: You're exactly right. What's hurting you? Yeah. No matter what, there's so many different coaches and programs and and they're always start with your why, but I've never heard that acronym before. That's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Martin, this has been amazing. I'm going to have to go do some digging and looking into being a people pleaser because I think I might have been one in a previous life. And just to help me reflect on it and think about where it might have come from, I usually tell the story with a little bit of a different filter on it. So I'm interested to go back through the story with your filter on it and see what it looks like. Yeah, that'll be an interesting exercise. Before we go, do you work with folks online? If people are listening and they want to get in touch with you, tell me how people can find you.
1: Well, first thing is I have a course that's online that they can do on demand. Okay. I also do one-on-one, which is like, I like to do it. And then I also have group coaching with the one on online, but I made it very easy for people to start to get tangible results. I came up with a card deck. Okay. Warrior to warrior card deck, which is the name of my course as well. And this gives you little tangible snippets of what it would be like to go through my course. And guess what's one of my cards? What's that? Rationalize.
0: Our rational, rational
1: lies. lies. Rational lies. And another card is self-conscious versus self-aware. Yep. So what I talk about is what I live. All right. Because you can't really give it to somebody if you haven't. Don't eat yourself. Right, right. You have to fill your own bucket first before you can pour anywhere else. Exactly. So I have a website. It's called connectwithmartin.com. Okay. You can go there, buy the cards, buy my book, find out about my course. You could also get some free gifts. All right. Let me ask you a question. Do you have kids? I don't. You don't? Okay, cool. Well, then you're going to love this even more. Okay. Because about a year ago, I was on a summit for parents and they said, can you come up with a gift for the parents? I'm like, yeah. I have this thing called seven tips you must teach your children to have an abundant warrior mindset. Great. I made up this white paper and whatever. I said, I'll make it even better. I made a coloring book for the kids Uh. on the seven steps. And then parents were like, I want one too. So if you go to my site, that connectwithmartin.com, you can get a coloring book for yourself. That's for adults. And by the way, Stephanie, I have a secret. What's that? It's okay to color outside of the lines. Oh God, don't tell me that.
0: (laughs) I thought that was against the rules. You make the rules. (laughs) You may be a recovering people pleaser. I am a recovering perfectionist. So uh, my, anything I color is usually quite pretty and in the lines, but I'm going to get your coloring book and I'm going to practice coloring outside the lines and maybe even with colors that don't match.
1: There you go. That would be big for nice, me. Nice. And then get the cards and you'll have those
0: tangible things to help you as well. Nice. I am going to put all of your contact information in the show notes so people will be able to find it. And I think this has been fantastic. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time and being so generous with your story today.
1: Thank you so much, Stephanie. I enjoyed every minute of it. You're a great host.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed meeting Martin as much as I did. He's such a great storyteller and has earned so much wisdom along the way. It's funny though, I started this podcast to share stories of people who were stuck in that ick of the 30s and 40s and found a way out of it. I wanted to give others going through that phase now some context for the ick they might be feeling and some ideas for how other people had moved through it and found something that fit better on the other side. But in so many episodes, I hear things that I relate to, even in my next decade. So when Martin put together the pieces of being a people pleaser, doing things our parents said just to make them happy, taking things personally, being a control freak, wanting recognition for our work or achievement, and having a very short temper. Ooh, that hit close to home. 20-something Stephanie checked all of those boxes but I had never painted that set of behaviors with the brush of people pleasing before, and now it's got me reflecting. All right, remember, the 40 Drinks Podcast will be back with new episodes on Tuesday, April 18th, which is the one year anniversary of the podcast launch and makes for some really nice congruence. I've got some pretty cool people lined up to talk about their growth and evolution around age 40 in season three. And if you have an interesting 40 story or know someone who does, Go to 40drinks.com guest to recommend someone who should join me on the podcast. I'll see you on April 18th. And stand by to hear my conversation with Martin about our favorite drink. The 40 Drinks podcast is produced and presented by Savoie Fair Marketing Communications.
1: You know, 40 drinks, I thought for sure you were going to ask me, what's my drink of choice? Oh, I'd be happy to. It, well, I don't really have one, but I was curious if that was part of your whole thing.
0: <sighs> it's so interesting that you bring that up. 40 drinks, obviously is something that I did when I turned 40. And when I turned this into a podcast, I, I've had a, a sort of love-hate relationship with the drinks part of it. Mm-hmm. I personally in my life don't do much drinking anymore, Neither but- um and I don't want people to get the sense that this is a drinking podcast. But
1: to... I am not a drinker. Yeah, I'm not yeah. a drinker.
0: I was and, on and... vacation last week and I drank more than I've
1: drank probably right. in a year, and it was what three or four drinks over the course right. of a week. Right. <laughs> and if you ask me what my drink is, it goes back to the '80s, and they don't mm-hmm. even make them anymore. What is it? Alabama Slammer.
0: Okay, we're gonna have to talk about this because that was my
1: favorite drink. <laughs> Do during... you know what the other name of it is? uh, no, it's slow, comfortable screw. Oh yeah. Right. And then up against the the wall Slow gin, Southern comfort and screwdriver.
0: Right, 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 right. Um, oh (laughs) Oh, my God, I
1: found somebody who loves it like me.
0: Um, so, okay. Now, now I'm going to tell you a drink story. So, uh, I drank, um, crazy fruity drinks when I was, uh, a kid, I I say a kid, certainly underage. And then, you know, my, in my (laughs) twenties and, um, I came across the Alabama Slammer, fell in love with it, loved all the sweetness of it and and the punch that it brought. Um, and of course, bartenders hate making them because they're, you know, a pain. And there was this one bartender here in town at my sort of hometown bar who he and I had always had this thing because he knew I was underage, but he couldn't quite catch me because the guy at the door would always vouch for me, right? So there was this back and forth and so whenever he, you know, if I'd send a guy up to the bar to order, you know, can I have five Bud Lights and an Alabama Slammer? He, Where,
1: <laughs> Where is, is she? she?
0: Where is she? <laughs> well, flash forward like 10 or 15 years later, I'm at an Italian restaurant with my parents. I think it's their 35th wedding anniversary and my whole family's there and we're ordering drinks and i see him behind the bar i hadn't seen him in a couple of years (laughs) and i said to the the waiter who i knew i said okay i want you to go up to you know give give him the order and i said and tell and an alabama slammer i said i don't really want it just tell him and watch what happens And so the, the waiter goes up to the bar and, you know, I was like, you know, this wine and that wine and a beer and a screwdriver and an Alabama slammer and no joke. He came out from behind the bar and started looking around the restaurant. (laughs) So, so finally a fellow Alabama slammerer. There you go.